0: Hey, dickheads! How about an interview with somebody who's even more of a Philip K. Dick nerd than us? Yes, that's right. Evan Lamp is a writer-historian. He has written books, articles, and done podcasts on Philip K. Dick, so this is about as nerdy as it can get. We go into it for all the books that we've read so far on dickheads. So please enjoy this interview with Evan Lamp. All right, dickheads. For our interview today, we have a special guest, a uh, fellow dickhead uh, blogger and vlogger and author um, who puts us to shame already on his dickheadedness. Uh, we're uh, far behind him, but we're on our way catching up. Uh, Evan Lamp, who you can find on Twitter at EvanLamp1, that's L A L A M P E. Um but we're gonna talk about all of his different work. So welcome to the show, Evan. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Um so let's start with your history with Philip K. Dick. Like how did you first discover the um PKD and you know what's your your history with him? Oh uh,
1: I guess it was when I was I was in Oregon for a couple of years and During grad, I took like a break from graduate school for a while. um, Following a girl around, actually, she started. She moved to Oregon, and well, I married her later on. Well, we both uh, uh, the the
0: two dickheads here in the room. We both met in
1: Oregon, so uh, we had that in common. And and I just found them at found Dick's books at the library, and I I can't really recall like. That where I heard of him before. Of course, everyone knows Blade Runner. Everyone knew Blade Runner at the time. But I just started reading his stuff, and I, I kind of liked it. And I read pretty broadly, just picking stuff up. and And I studied him fairly intensely for like six months or so. And I was really interested in like the more philosophical side of what Dick was writing about. Kind of the valus stuff. I was sort of into a lot of the drug stuff. The the quirky weirdness of it. I I, I liked. I also liked a lot of the humor, but I was just kind of reading it casually. And I, I, yeah, and then I went back when I was teaching like a US history course. And when I was a, started as a professor, because I'm a historian by training, you know, what you always do when you first get those academic jobs is you assign way too much reading, because it's really easy for you. And you, you assume it'll be easy for them to graduate. So you assign a lot of books and stuff. And when I was teaching US history the second semester of it, you know, I, I signed Ubik kind of as a 60s novel for them to read and and that's when i started thinking about dick again a little bit more and it's it's really when i started to do some blogging and some because i had this Amer, uh, american writers blog which is kind of like the draft of my podcast now i i was looking at dick's novels there uh, that's when it got into the library of america and i kind of got a renewed interest in him because i was reading the i was subscribing to the library of america series and i saw Dick showed up, so I started reading him again more systematically, and and that's when I really discovered that I, I that I liked Dick more as like a social theorist and an economic thinker. Thinker, and I was more drawn to the issues of like labor and class and power, and and I just found there wasn't that much deep analysis on those issues. Um like urban geography, what dick has to say about urban geography
0: so what uh, year what year was this that you were in Oregon when you first kind of discovered him at the library
1: uh two thousand three i guess hmm so were you a science fiction reader before you read p k d Oh yeah, I was probably more casual I mean I was in the middle of graduate school, so I was just reading history basically um and it's and it's kind of like throughout college, I didn't read that much fiction in general. I was just reading academic works, but you know, it's really later that I started to get more serious systematically and I'm under- just trying to understand science fiction, but I was a casual reader for sure throughout high school and before that, but I didn't really come across Philip Dick earlier. I was Asimov I was Re- Heinlein. That's the stuff I was reading.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. High yeah. We both grew up reading that stuff here too. Um, so do you remember what was the first p k d novel that individually you read or or is that kind of lost to your memory
1: <laughs> it it's it must it's lost but um it, actually I have one of them here this is a vintage i remember the it was these vintage books with kind of the ugly covers right <laughs> <laughs> now they got better covers uh the mariner editions are are much better made and stuff but i remember the whole lo- row of these um certainly i read Like Scanner Darkly, very early. Mm hmm. I read pretty early. Uh, Now Wait for Last Year. Those are some of the first ones I read.
0: And so you said that. Right. So you said that you, you, you were interested very early by Vallis and some of the philosophical writings, but it was, that's not really the thing that interests you as much anymore about PKD. But what about those philosophical ideas in the beginning uh, were really the, the, the
1: things that hooked you? I I don't know. I think I, I just was, I don't know. It's really hard to reflect back on like where my mind was at, at the time, but that, that kind of reality shifting stuff. And like, I just thought there were cool ideas. I think I was never really religious. So I was, always, that always kind of was part of Dick that I separated myself from. I never really got too much into like that Gnostic stuff, but the, uh, the what is real question was something, for whatever reason, I was interested in at the time. But thinking back, it's like that is not what interests me about Philip Giddick anymore at all, really. Right. It's... It's... Or, or what's real? Like, I think, take a look, you've done Cosmic Puppets, right? Yeah, we just did Cosmic Puppets, yeah. Yeah, yeah so this this experience you have when you, you come back to your hometown. Now, of course, that character remembers what the old town looks like. My experience is very different, usually, where – I don't remember what came before. I see the change and I take it for granted, but I know it's different. Mm-hmm. And I know something's shifted. You know, a building's changed, a business goes out of business, something else moves into that slot or whatever, or the mall becomes a ghost town, whatever changes take place. But sometimes it's hard to recollect what came before, mm-hmm. right? Because we experience that change a little more gradually, I guess. In that novel, the character comes back after, what, 20 years and kind of experiences the change all in one gulp. That's, um... But the thing is, our realities do shift. We are in this liquid world, but that's fully a function of capital and the power relations we have and the way cities are planned and organized. And it's not a mystical thing at all. It's not a mystery. It's, it's actual power relations. And that's why I just, I really like penultimate truth because that really gets to the heart of it. That yeah, reality's fuzzy and, and goofy and we are kind of living in this black iron prison, but you know, there's a reason for that. So mhm you, there's really a power behind it that that has a specific purpose for for pursuing that. And that's the kind of questions that I, I find more interesting now. How how Dick helps us interpret this liquid reality we live in?
0: Okay, so before we get more into like the nitty-gritty uh nerd out stuff, um let's talk just like real physically, like what exactly are are the different things that you you've done in your um you know in your dickhead career you have a book you have a blog and now a podcast let's let's run down through how um which projects people can uh find your work in
1: okay well the first writing i ever did on philip dick was a was an older blog and that blog's long dead like um the philip k dick review is kind of dead too but uh, the first, it was called Neither Kings Nor Americans, which is a quote from Volterine DeClaire, an American anarchist. And that's the name of the blog. It's still up there, but I stopped uploading to it. And that was, I was trying to re- basically read through the Library of America, uh, that collection of American writing. And when I got to Dick, because I had read him before, instead of just doing the three volumes that they published, which was something like 15 novels, they said, let's do all novels. Let's do, you know, as many I can get my hands on. So I ended up doing like 30 of the novels in a long series. Uh, And those are really short thousand word or 1500 word essays on each book where I just kind of get to the the main ideas. But what I realized when I was doing that, what I realized when I was doing that was there was there were these common themes that I never used to think about when I read Dick in earlier times, like the city or like monogamy in the family or surveillance state. These were questions I never really thought about when I was reading them back in graduate school. So I started to actually make notes, make a list of these themes, and then that's really what led me to approach Wide Books, which is a small micro press. You should all support. They they publish just publish a handful of of works by Philip Dick. Um, I don't know how active they are now, but I approached them with this idea of pulling this all together into into a book. So that's what came next,
0: and that's uh, Philip K. Dick and the world we live in, right? Yeah. Which is so that's kind of themed on the whole like the uh, the economic structure and the cities and the different you know uh, yeah. takes that that his work do sociologically basically
1: yeah I can run down the the themes of that I think it's ten chapters so it, it's, it's one theme is 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 labor and automation post work and and that so like galactic pod healer is really core text in that the autofact stuff. And Dick's anxiety about automation and what what is meaningful work? I guess that was the question there. Then I looked at the surveillance state. Then it was the family, which, you know, the, especially in a lot of his short stories like Human Is or Beyond the Door, there's interesting stuff about the family. And, of course, there's a lot of his own personal life pulled into interpretation of, of the family. And then it was like State Power was a chapter. One chapter was on consumerism. One chapter was on what is it, mental illness, right? Because you know, and one was on the frontier, and one was on the city, so, and there there might be one or two others I, I missed. So, but these were themes I didn't really see being explored as thoroughly as I, I think they can be. So, partially, I was trying to be provocative and and to toss out some some themes that I hoped other people would pick up, pick up. And then I was like, read just, I added to what Dick was saying to some analysis and, and reflection on the things happening in our world. So that's where the title comes from. Mm
0: -hmm. Now I personally, mm -hmm. so I personally found your work when I, when I was um, researching second variety for our episode about screamers and second variety. And and I, I happened upon the um, Philip K Dick review WordPress and, I might I actually I think I did use some quotes too from your blog on um The Man Who Japed as well. Yeah. And so I think it was those two back to back where I was like, well, okay, now I keep quoting this guy. I gotta I gotta know more about him <laughs> and then I reached out to you through email and saw that you had written this this book and then I was a little afraid to read the book because I was afraid it was going to um prejudice my views i mean i've obviously read some of the later pkd but um this is my this for this podcast that we're doing is my first time reading um a great majority of the earlier works Mm -hmm. so you know i i didn't you know i'm loving your essays when i read them right after having read the book (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but i'm really afraid to read for example like um Galactic Pie Healer, for example, is one I have no experience with. And mm-hmm. so I, I want to go into it cold. And, um, but what I think is, is really great about some of your writings with the books, with the books. And I'm, I'm going to look at specifically the man who japed for a second, because we've yeah. already done that episode is that the themes of society in, in your essays about the book, show your level as a historian that, um, there's, there's a really great overview of the man who japed and the idea, the political ideas that Dick is getting at in that book, which on the surface can seem comical, but there's some really serious, um, there's some, some real serious sociolo- sociology in the man who japed. Is what I'm saying, and yeah. i I really like your historical angles to that.
1: I don't know if you have anything to say about them yeah, I, I sometimes thought about this because I actually don't have from an academic sense I don't have any business doing all this stuff it's it's a distraction from my historical research first of all <laughs> so, uh, I've actually been lectured by you know colleagues from time to time that you got to get your yeah I have written a book of history uh, called uh, on the Pacific Seattle Fur Trade and the China Trade. But I got other projects in mind, and I got a project on Lovecraft and Atlantic history. I'm trying to write. But I keep being distracted by these other things, and so I shouldn't be spending my time podcasting, I guess, or blogging. But, no, but the question I sometimes think about is, would I think about these things the way I do if I wasn't trained as a historian? And, and I don't really know if I have a clear answer to that. But some things, like the way I think about Frontier, Uh, Did you read my essay or listen to my episode on The Frontier?
0: No, no, not yet.
1: It's it's in that PKD review, and I basically just read the thing for the podcast episode on his Dick's view of history. Mm -hmm. And especially early on in the works you've already covered, he's got this this very strong frontier Mm -hmm. view, right? I think all of them, except maybe Cosmic Puppets, have The Frontier very forefront of those novels.
0: Well, and they're also every single one ends with somebody go, wanting to go off to a colony as yeah. well. It's it funny because it's like that's a it drives um our co-host Anthony crazy. He's like every single one ends with somebody like you know like oh we're gonna charge off to the colony, and
1: um, this is a very American thing though. That that's why I think because I've yeah. read these histor- historians writing about the frontier and I've read William Jackson Turner and these. Cause he was a 19th early 20th century, early 20th century historian who thought the frontier was what made America. right? Well, you know and, what, yeah. you, you mm-hmm. know what I
0: think is kind of interesting is the difference between how we, we come at, at um, PKD and what, what you do is that we all three come at it as a, from a storyteller perspective, mm-hmm. right? Cause we're all three fiction writers And so we immediately look at everything through a lens of structure, character story. And so I think one of the things that is really good about when, when I get done reading a book and I go to to see what, what Evan wrote about it (laughs) is that you are looking at things from a, uh, more, um, analytical historian perspective. And, so, like, for example, with Man Who Japed, a lot of our commentary was how he built the humor, how he um, created the satire. And we definitely talked a lot about his view because obviously the Man Who Japed is very much a satire or a send-up of communist China, right? Mm-hmm. So we we have a little bit of background on that because, you know, um, I actually was – a history major for a little while, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I like history, and I like politics. We're all people that like political things, but it's not our main focus. So, I think with like, for example, the man who japed, and like now you're about to start teaching in China. You've taught in Taiwan. I'm wondering with the man who japed, like, um, you know p k d was a guy who was living in Berkeley, but he was definitely trying to write about communist china and and how much do you think his take in the man who japed um how much did he get right is what i'm thinking well, like
1: i i don't know if he got t- too much right, but that's that's common i think he he didn't get any totalitarianism's to right, but the thing is neither did Orwell. And what I liked about what Dick does in those first five or six novels is he sort of presents a series of dystopias. And you got to throw Vulcan's Hammer and Dr. Futurity into that. Because mm-hmm. they, they were published later, but they were written all at the same time. So it's Dr. Futurity, uh, Solar Lottery, The Man Who Japed. Uh, you can even throw an eye in the sky. Uh, what's the other one I mentioned? Vulcan's Hammer. They're all very distinct dystopias. Oh, the the world Jones made was the other with relativism, right? They're all very distinct dystopias. And you have Orwell kind of overhanging this in the backdrop. And he's saying there's like a singular authoritarianism that's going to exist forever. It's permanent. It can't change. It's the boot pounding the face for all eternity, right? And this is that kind of Cold War view of, of authoritarianisms, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of. And I think Orwell actually does us a disservice in a way by, by presenting these things so static and eternal and uncontestable, right? And that's, I don't know what that gets us really. But what I like what Dick does in these is he imagines all these different dystopias and he shows them all very flawed and fragile and challengeable. You know, even in The Man Who Japed, it's, it's even just being a troll can undermine the, the entire system right? And in a lot of his novels, he gets right to the point where the system is fractured, and then he's, he's done with the story. He doesn't care about it afterwards. Like in The Penultimate Truth or um, The Simulacrum, he builds up this system, this authoritarian system and all its contradictions and uh, conflicts and the way it's structured, and then he gets to the point where it falls apart, and then the novel ends. And he's just like, well, the future's unwritten. And I, I find that very cool, and that's something I like what he does now back to the man who japed. how much did he get right uh, well i the thing is like the like the the way the surveillance state works in the man who japed i maybe in the culture revolution you had some of that but i don't think in the 50s well and i think
0: the funniest part or the most comical part of the man who japed is less of the, the actual prank but mm-hmm. the neighborhood groups and all the scenes yeah. w- where the the neighbors are kind of uh, you know judging everybody and all those things and i think you know phil seemed to say in different interviews and stuff that he was taking this idea from a concept that w- was going on in china um with where people were informing on each other and i think mm-hmm. what what i like that he did is that he took something that could be kind of ominous and he made it hilarious yeah um, it is. yeah and
1: When so, did he give the when did he make those comments because i i don't really trust what dick says yeah he 73 made, about anything really fuck uh, <laughs> it really works anyways
0: right i believe it was in a letter um it was one of those letters like in the early 60s where he was kind of hmm. talking about Ace's treatment of his books were. I think okay. it started with where he was talking about how they constantly changed his titles, and man, Man Who Japed is one of the few that they didn't change his title, right? Like,
1: so when did when did he write that? I pulled up the bibliography. Man Who Japed written fifty five, yeah. So the revolution was in forty nine, and. The main movement by 1955 in China was land reform. My understanding of, and I'm not a Chinese historian, expert in Chinese history, it was the land reform. And yes, there would have been call out, like kind of a call out culture, a public call out culture in the land reform. What would happen is the party would go into a village and the landlords or the rich peasants would be confronted by the crimes and then there'd be a process of of restitution where the land would be redivided and would be led by the parties. And ideally the peasants would take leadership roles in how the land would be divided. And that, that was kind of the process. Like the, the really nasty stuff where like teachers were dragging down to the street and wearing dunce hats and people were sent out to the countryside. That's from the cultural revolution, which is in the sixties.
0: Mm, right.
1: So you might be of being experienced in the cultural revolution and say, wow, this thing reminds me of something I wrote in the man who japed. And, right, and reverse back. I'm I'm a little bit skeptical, to be honest, that he was modeling this off Communist China. Yeah, well, you know, he was in the '55. Yeah,
0: he was reacting. I think with Man Who Japed because with Solar Lottery, he he felt like they or the critics were pigeonholing mm-hmm. him as leftist, and so yeah. he kind of overreacted with World Jones made and Man Who Japed to try and make it seem like he was very critical of communism and yeah. i don't know if that was him trying to like hey look at me i'm not a communist because keep in mind we're still right in the middle of mccarthyism which is obviously something that was on his mind when he wrote eye in the sky right
1: yeah he he definitely put, tries to make this case and i yeah i think he's not communist i mean i never would make that claim i i think he's got a very anti-capitalist critique running through his works though and i, I think those are different um things of course oh absolutely like, but the way he describes like the communist worldview and the eye in the sky and you're going to be doing that soon it's such a caricature it's so jokey it's it's almost preposterous but yeah maybe he's putting that in there to say see i'm not any you know communist or the way he presents the communist characters or even the pro-leftist characters in that novel
0: yeah it's, it's well
1: the dickhead
0: the dickhead to my right has not red eye in the sky yet i just finished it for for uh the episode so i know exactly what you mean uh larry look forward to it because eye in the sky is funnier than the man who japed if you ask me um so let's nerd let's nerd the fuck out on like all the way back let's talk about solar lottery for a minute Mm -hmm. um this was obviously cosmic puppets was his first attempt at writing science fiction um, or fantasy. I, we all kind of agree it's more of a fantasy novel than a science fiction novel. But mm. Solar Lottery is the first one that was unleashed to the world. And this is kind of the first salvo for PKD's ideas. And, you know, it's really easy in the Trump era to look at Solar Lottery and this whole idea of how, you know, um, you know, when we have a leader who's a fucking imbecile. And, um, to look at solar lottery, it was really hard to not think in this era about that, but I'm wondering from a historical, as a historian, as a person that looks at things in the sociological aspect, what do you think are the greatest strengths of the solar lottery as a debut for Philip K. Dick?
1: Okay. What's, what's the strongest things here? Uh, that's, that's, a okay. I, I th- First of all, I kind of think the idea of a randomocracy, even though it's not really well-developed in the novel, it's really just the leader is this quiz master. Um, the idea, if he would have developed this more of a randomocracy, is really cool from a historical point of view because that's something Athens actually had to a small degree where citizens were randomly chosen to serve like these one- or two-year terms in an assembly, and it was kind of a civic duty to do that. And, you know, I think that if we could implement something like that, that could make like we could make the House of Representatives, for instance, a randomocracy. It'd be more representative of the people uh, and maybe a more better functioning body than something that's chosen, you know, by elections where, of course, money invo- is involved in all that. So I think that's a kind of a cool thing. And I would like to see other, you know, other writing and thinking about this idea of randomocracy. democracy. Um, but, uh, the idea of like this corporate feudalism, I think is really, really powerful and a big part of that novel, something that really attract that, that why I think this novel is so important. And it's one I actually read quite late. It's not even mentioned, I think in the book I wrote, but uh feudal, the corporate feudalism there, I think is a big part of it. And then this kind of frontier dream, I Again, I, I don't know. I, I think it's maybe because he's maybe it's because he's a California writer. Maybe it's the yeah that's that's fine. Maybe it's the maybe it's coming at it from a California writer. Maybe it's the influence of like the Western and the kind of the American culture of the time, which was aggrandizing the frontier. The role that it plays in as this kind of subplot here of the searching for the tenth planet. It's I think it's really well done and, and interesting. Um, and then I think, as a again, I don't know if he's responding to Orwell, but the idea of a, a flawed system that that can be challenged and can be hacked and and can be worked around, I think, is interesting and important. I I, I like my science fiction a little more optimistic, I guess. Yeah, and and I found that in in the so, solar lo, solar lottery, and then I think the overall zaniness of it, like the um, is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, we we really liked the um the um the psychic assassins and all that all that oh, yeah, stuff. Good. That is not in it enough, of- if you ask me. But you know, um. I I think with Solar Lottery what I really learned is that a lot of times the early work for PKD is dismissed as not as good as the stuff that came later or not as important and by reading in an order and starting Whistler Lottery for us is that it really taught me I was like no um no he was he came out of the the gate swinging I I know
1: Yeah
0: I agree That the the book is supposedly I mean, he's admitted himself. PKD has said in letters that the book is very derivative of of votes' um, world of null a, and we're intending to do an episode on uh, um, and review on um, votes' uh, world of null a as kind of a companion to Solar Lottery, but that's that's coming in a couple months, um, and uh, so he. F- um, now, we debated a lot on what he followed it up with. Uh, it's, it's From our timeline, it looks that the world the Jones made came second. And for me, I like the world that Jones made because it did get so wacky. It is so weird. It And like stuff that it's hard to believe um, PKD was writing with the um, dancers who change gender – um, mm-hmm. pretty much the same year the heartbreak hotel came out <laughs> and, yeah. uh, Elvis's hips were like a big deal. So uh, the world Jones made to me, like the wackiness of the circus was kind of what everyone kept selling the book as, but, um, the, um, kind of the, the precogs and all that stuff that that come with mm-hmm. it. There are deeper uh, sociological issues. And what we kept finding was that with World Jones Made, that the more we talked about the book, the better we liked it. Like when we actually read it and just read it on our own, we weren't – all three of us weren't that into it. But the more we talked about it, the themes, nuclear war, the different – like all all the different aspects of the World Jones Made was one that – The more you delve into the issues, I think the world Jones made became stronger. How do you feel about the world Jones made?
1: Oh, I think it's a wonderful novel. And I think it's incredibly relevant today, Uh, not because we have a precog president, although that that would, I mean, that would explain uh, Trump's unlikely rise, right? I think the way he plays with this, a precog who can only see one year in the future, how far could they get before they box themselves in the corner, right? Right, uh, I think Hitler was his model, right? He was, in fact, in the text they sell, they say maybe Hitler was the same deal. That's that's really cool. But I I love what he does with the frontier here. But I'll get back to that. I think the 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 way he presents like fascist movements, not just in this work, but in I think to a degree in Doctor Futurity, there's some of this, but certainly in the Simulacrum, right? The the how fascist movements emerge is very similar to what we see today, whether it's anti-foreign, foreignism in the simulacrum, it's the power for the fascist movement comes from alienated men who, you know, don't have jobs, don't really have a purpose in life. And they gravitate towards a fascist movement in that book. And it's very, it's kind of what we see today, I think with some of the the rise of the right and the, the alt-right, the kind of people who get attracted to the alt-right. Um, I joked about it
0: in our episode that, like, why did PKD have to write a book to say Hitler was bad? Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you're right with this current age that we have, you know, and I just watched that frontline documenting hate episode where, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, yeah, which was really scary to watch. And, and so you can see that, and then I thought to myself, I, I recently reread, um, Sinclair Lewis's It, it Can't Happen Here. And then I thought to myself, if if Sinclair Lewis felt the need to write "It Can't Happen Here," then you know why why wouldn't um, PKD feel the need to to make a, a statement about Nazism even you know ten years after defeating the Nazis, right? I mean, yeah, and then he
1: continues this on in, in like "The Man in the High Castle," right? Like he's, he really gets to the heart of just how bankrupt fascism is. Yeah. It, and certainly it's more direct
0: in, in Man in the High Castle and, and, you know, that's, um, you know, and, and, and fairly obvious. And, um, but it was interesting. I did see in one of the letters that I read or one of the interviews that quote from PKD where, you know, he, he's, you know, talked very openly about, you know, Hitler was his model for this and, and, and it does Creates some uncomfortableness with the, the amoeba like creatures, like being compared to Jews. <laughs> oh, yeah. At, at times in the book is kind of uncomfortable. So we already talked about Man Who Japed. Um, and we well, talked,
1: there's another story though you should think about. I don't know. You're not reading the stories, right?
0: Uh, we're reading, so far we've been reading the stories that have been turned into films and we're reading Human okay. Is Next.
1: Well, there's a story called The Martians Come in Cloud. And I remember he wrote most of these stories before he started publishing these novels. Yeah. Right. So Martians Come in Cloud, I don't know the exact year he wrote it, um, but that's about these amoeba creatures who come and land in suburban communities. And then they're, they're like essentially lynched by the community. They're burned and tortured. And some of them are actually literally hanging from trees when they're, so there's kind of the image of the lynching the imagery of the lynching. And there's a scene then where one of the boys in the neighborhood, like has a psychic connection. And the realization is that these aren't just mindless amoebas. They're actually psychic entities that are fleeing a dead home world and, you know, trying to land on our oceans or something. So he borrows this in the man, uh, the world Jones made. Yeah. I might've read. There's that uncomfortableness. Like he's, he's trying to do this, this imagery of lynching, but then using his, you know, an alien to do it. That's,
0: yeah, I have read many PKD short stories but I'm not sure I've read that one. Yeah. But uh yeah, so um yeah, uh World Jones made it definitely um you know, it's funny because the um the whole that the whole Hitler thing definitely um does make it right now um strangely more relevant but in a weird way. You know, that's the thing is that we've just talked about how Solar Lottery is also uh, meaningful for our times. And and that's part of one of the reasons why we're all doing this is because PKD does speak to all these times. And I'm sure there were other times within the last 50 years where people were saying, oh, my God, this novel is talking about today. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I- one
1: interesting thing, I think the, the, the idea that this Jones movement is responding to relativism, that seems very contemporary to me, scarily contemporary. Now, you know, this kind of PC culture that you have so many on the right are are attacking and, you know, blaming for our, you know, so many of the problems in our society. Right. We're too open. We're too liberal. And you get the, the power for the right comes from there. Um, But on this novel, I want to go back to something about the frontier, which I think is really interesting. And actually, the man in the high castle ties to this, because in there, you have two different types of fascism, of course, one's an insurgent movement, the other is a a victorious state. Um, But both are like pushing into the frontier. Both see, both see their future in space, but it's a very vapid kind of frontier. It's just military conquest. For no purpose. And especially in the Man in the High Castle, Dick goes again and again about how vapid this kind of frontier is. That there's really no, if you're just expanding for the purpose of expansion or just as a kind of political propaganda, it doesn't get you anywhere. And what he does in the world Jones made is that subplot that probably a lot of people who read it think, why is this even here? Why does it matter? And that's that Venusians, the Venusian mutants. Because the novel opens with them, right? They're trying to breed these. The useless,
0: v- yeah, the Venus babies.
1: The the, the people who are going to live in Venus, and that's the more authentic. That's actually the frontier that is going to be successful mm-hmm. at the end. And it's it's not a human conquest. It's not military. It's science, and it, it's a kind of a very enlightenment view of 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 progress in a frontier. Yeah, well,
0: because they're they're more equipped to survive
1: the the wasteland, I guess. Yeah. And they're a community. It's not a military. They're like, they they share some values and they work. That's an important part of it too. They have to labor to create this frontier. So it's in that sense, it's, he, I think he's got in this time of his writing, he's got this romanticization of, of the American frontier almost. Right. Focus on like, you you just gotta, it's gotta be about work and community and all that. And kind of like the Puritans or something. It's maybe in his mind. I don't know.
0: Hmm. Well, okay, so for our listeners that um that have been have been with us, uh we've also done the Cosmic Puppets. And mm-hmm. Cosmic Puppets was the the first one that um we had consensus on that none of us really liked it. <laughs> oh. Um we we appreciated things about it. Um and it's funny because I got talked down because I I liked it more when I first read it and then the more we talked about it the more problems i I admitted the book had um and and a lot of it it we discovered that uh, according to p k d there was a version of this novel when it was called uh, Glass of Darkness that yeah. was twice as long,
1: <laughs> yeah, that probably would have helped it, maybe,
0: yeah, well, we couldn't decide if that would help or hurt it. We debated that a little bit, but One thing that's interesting is we just recently discovered that Dick's papers are, um, very close to us at the University of Fullerton. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna attempt in the near future to, um, to visit his papers and, um, see if there is in his archive a copy of the (laughs) 80,000 uh, word version of and i'm assuming in order to get it into satellite science fiction which is a magazine that's why he originally cut it down
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but here's a funny thing too is don wolheim who was his editor all those years at ace uh we found this quote where he didn't um cosmic puppets went out of print for many 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 years and he didn't even remember that the book existed He he couldn't even remember what it was about right now he published a lot of books with with Ace Books so we can see why that would happen but the Cosmic Puppets was one that from 1957 or 56 to 1982 was completely out of print and was lost what do you think is the importance of for you the importance of Cosmic Puppets as a book that was clearly less important uh, kind of originally in the canon of PKD and what makes it so such an, uh, an important book now for everyone to go back and read? Why should everyone be reading The Cosmic Puppets? It's one that was out of print for so long.
1: Okay. I think everyone should be reading The Cosmic Puppets for really one thing and that's to think about urban geography and think about our cities and think about democracy in our cities and like who controls the development now it's a small town of course so maybe cities maybe i'm stretching a bit too much and maybe i I agree with you it's not a very good novel and there's (laughs) cringy there's cringeworthy moments in here like with uh the young young girl yes yes young girls (laughs) getting naked and you know putting some weird mud on them and stuff so yeah, we, know, I don't know how that stuff we, would be received now. We handled but that
0: in our, in, in our episode. We talked a lot about how uncomfortable that made us. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I do a little bit of that in my podcast episode. I think I had four parts or five parts on it. Plus, I have a YouTube video on it. So, what's, what you have here is you have one character who wants to restore the old. He's, not, he's nostalgia. He's got nostalgia. So, he's, uh, you know, we have that today. A lot of people, you know, oh, the new Star Wars. That's horrible, right? Keep it like the old way. Yeah, that 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 critique, right? That very superficial critique of the new Star Wars film, saying it's just it's not like what I grew up with, and the main character is that kind of person, and the drunk guy. These are people who want to restore the old, and they just are resisting any change. Now, ignore the gods. Take the gods out of it, and all, and all that. Right? You have one group of characters who want to bring back the old because that's all they're comfortable with, and that's all they're ever going to be comfortable with. Then you have another group, and then these, I guess, are the gods who can transform the city at their whim. Right. And I guess that's, that's our urban planners. That's our mayors, our city governments, the developers who do that. I live in a city in Taipei where whole neighborhoods go tore down to build stadiums, to build all the old neighborhoods are ripped apart and to build these high apartments that no one can live in. It's constantly being gentrified. And that's always done around democracy. It's, it seems it's not a very democratic way it's done. It's always the drive of capital makes those decisions for us. And so I think it's not a debate about whether we let the gods rule our cities or we, or, or we go back and just not have anything to change, but really we need a third millgate. In my YouTube video on this, I talk about the need for a third mill gate, uh, uh, an option in which the people actually can creatively control the destiny of their city you know, what, uh, people like Matt Harvey, a geographer has called like the right to the city. He's actually getting that from this other guy, uh, Lefebvre, I think his name is, uh, who like 60 years ago wrote about the right to a city. Right. And and about getting citizens that, that actual, the power to control the destiny of, of the communities they live in. And so that's, I think, and I don't know how much of that Dick was thinking about, but you know, that's what I'm taking out of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the cosmic puppets, I think, um, For there's there are a lot of really I think it's interesting because it was so early in his writing, but I think there's a lot of really great prose too in Cosmic Puppets, like here and there, and things like I really loved how the Wanderers were introduced and and some of those ideas and like I like I said earlier, like we come at it from a from a storytelling perspective much more than than. And, you know, so for, from that perspective, I think that's one of the reasons why we were not big fans of the Cosmic Puppets, because I think for us, um it was kind of a storytelling mess um mm-hmm. in, in, in a lot of ways. But nonetheless, like, you know, we're enjoying the process of reading everything from the beginning because, you know, we're getting to see this development of, of Philip K. Dick and I know speaking of for myself um my first novel that was released was the fourth one that i wrote same mm-hmm. you know as 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 dick so when people are talking about my progression as a writer um you know i had an interesting moment where when when my novel came out that was the first one that i ever wrote um you know they so i read a review where they were saying well look at the progression he's made as a writer <laughs> And I had written the, the first one <laughs> long after. And I think it's really easy to do that with, with Dick in this era because there's such a jumbled mess of when he wrote everything and where he wrote everything. And I think for us, the cosmic puppets just, um, you know, it's weird because I think that maybe, you know, he had had his growth and, you know, I felt so much more confident reading The Solar Lottery that I was in the hands of somebody who was coming together, for example. And that was his first release novel, whereas like Cosmic Puppets, it just didn't work in that way. But, yeah. um, so, uh, we're going to wrap up here soon, but, um... I'm going to make an executive decision. You can edit this out, um, Larry. Do you mind if we talk about Eye in the Sky? Because I'm not sure if this episode is going to come out till after we do Eye in the Sky.
1: Yeah, sure, go for it.
0: Um, so I'm going to apologize to Larry personally because I don't. I don't care. You haven't read it yet. Okay. Yeah. So Eye in the Sky. Let's talk about Eye in the Sky, and then we'll be done. <laughs> um, Eye in the Sky uh, to me was a giant leap in in reading it in order. Um, even though there's a lot of problematic language <laughs> in eye in the sky, but storytelling wise, yes, it's very similar to, um, you know, people I'm sure will now in retrospect compare it to inception, even though obviously it was decades before inception, this mm-hmm. concept of a, a kind of a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream and everything's happening in this split second where these people are at the bottom of the bevatron, right? Yeah. But here he's taking like a very science fictional idea um with a uh, particle collider and with a little wackadoo science he's going to um he's going to take this giant jab at communism and mccarthyism and america and this is to me the most starkly political novel that he's done so far but it's hilarious
1: and oh yeah it is
0: yeah it's truly funnier than, than The Man Who Japed, um, which I know kind of gets thrown around as a comedy. Um, but do you think that this book um, is one that people should look at for kind of a, a historical reaction to the 50s? Is this much more of a 50s novel than the other ones that we've read?
1: Oh, I I think it's definitely responding to McCarthyism directly in that sense and the Cold War environment. And the idea that we I think the powerful the powerful element in this novel is we really don't understand each other. And we never really like the the surface reality, what we see, whether it's on the television or just in our own perceptions, or even when we sit down and talk with someone, is not the reality, right? And this extends even into maybe like your spouse, right? Into the bedroom. Like do we know the person, you know, that I'm spending my life with and we can't really know until we get into their heads, right? And to extend that to the Cold War environment, and I think historians have essentially proven this: that the Cold War views of the Soviet Union were distortions, right? the The way most people think about Stalinism is not how St- you know life was actually lived in, in Stalin's Russia. And some since the Soviet archives have been opened, we we know a lot more about about that. Um, yeah, I think in that sense, I. I like it. I, I think Dick is also here playing with like the shifting reality thing, and he's he's doing it in different novels. So in Eye in the Sky, it's about personal subjectivity and how we really don't understand each other, and reality shifts because we you know, if we start seeing the world through other people's eyes, it's all messed up.
0: Because everything, because the, world, everything the world, the world in. The world, I,
1: yeah.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? Oh, sorry, that?
1: No, we're getting a. No, we're getting a Hear that? Yeah, we're getting a weird repeat. Where's that coming from?
0: Is that on your? From my end, I don't know. Was it my bad internet? Maybe. Okay. I think it's gone. Okay, it's gone. So okay. All right. So a huge theme in Eye in the Sky is that you know, like you were saying, the, the the subjectivity of so it's it's he uses the science fictional concept to put us in this other reality, but basically. It could be just about the perception, your perception, like living in someone in the way someone else views the world. Yeah. So a lot of what I in the sky is about is, for example, if you're like talking to somebody who's a religious extremist and you're like, "Whoa, what would it be like to live in their the world that they see? Right. And to me, that's one of the things that's like. A super original idea that PKD came on because we there's all kinds of alternate realities that you know that we've seen in science fiction, and certainly ten years later we'll have one that just Spock having a goatee makes it an alternate universe. And yeah. and here, I what's interesting is that if you read the back, and we always do a lot about reading the back covers and how different the books are from from the way they're described in the back cover, and it's funny because. It's really easy to think it's just about McCarthyism, but so much of this novel is about – it's almost more about religion and the concept of – and I know I read a quote where PKD had said something that – the the one woman who had the very religious world that they were in in the beginning, or the puritanical world. The puritanical world was inspired yeah. by one of his mother in laws, I yeah, guess.
1: I believe it. Well, yeah how projects. I, I'm sure Constantinopoulos had written some time where he he visited a town with his wife. You know, he he visited some old whole, whole town he remembered from his youth with his wife and his wife was bored and wanted to wait in the hotel and he's exploring around and everything's different. That's I probably, that probably happened to him. And so he wrote it into a novel.
0: Yeah. And And there's a great quote where he said that he is always interested in reality, just being slightly different, right? Yeah. That just like slightly different changes. And I know recently I was trying to work on a short story that was very PKD influenced. And what I wanted to do was focus on those, little tiny things, like just the, the things that maybe you wouldn't notice right away. And I think what eye in the sky does really well is that even though they know they're, they're in other perceptions or other realities, like when they get further into the book, I can't do anything about it. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of trapped, but they know it's, it's purely perception. And I think, I'm wondering with eye in the sky, do you feel like, because I do that this, this novel was a huge stepping stone in the storytelling ability for PKD and the
1: ability. Oh, that's, yeah. I, I get like, we already established that I, I often, I don't really think about them in terms of, of, of storytelling so much, but definitely it's a better, like it's, it's a novel, you know, that's put together a little bit better than some of the others. Some are like a lot of ideas spattered around that are just crammed together. You know? Yeah. You have that like yeah. in Solar Lotter, you have it in The World Jones Made. Like in The World Jones Made, you have this this idea of a psychic with this amazing ability working at a carnival, right? He probably thought about that because this is some stories too. And that could be a whole story, but he just crammed it in with other stuff. And he keeps doing this. Like the simulacrums this way, a lot of novels do that. But this is one of the better... That, that seemed like a, a self-contained story that he was trying to tell. I do wonder, though, if, if this was cut short because I wonder if he had eight realities at one point drafted out in his mind and he ran out of space because he spent like half the novel on second Babism, this religious worldview. And then he's like, oh, I don't have any space. So he, there, the others are accelerated. Now it works in the plot because you can say, well, the world's breaking down or whatever, right? But I wonder if at some point he actually, I, w- I want to know what it's like in the little kid's head And I want to know what it's like, into that Martha's the wife's head. Well, we never get it. Right. Well, what's funny
0: too, is that he did write it. The original draft, there was no Bob. There was no, it was Christianity. Mm. And Don Wolheim told him, you know, don't offend people, like pick a different religion, which was interesting for me because, um, I, uh, one of my first serious girlfriends was a Baha'i and, and, uh, um, Not at that time, but a decade later, I, the, my one experience with like, hey, I'm going to try religion <laughs> was uh, the Baha'i faith. And so that moment where he talks about 1844 and the arrival of the Bab like, was like crazy to me because I was like – I had no idea that the Baha'i faith was kind of mentioned in here. He gets a lot of stuff wrong about the Baha'i faith, but he had like the dates correct and – and I didn't
1: it, even know that was a real religion. I thought he was making it up when I first read the novel. And then I I, I wrote a lecture on new religious movements for a history class. Right, century history. And then it's like, wow, this is this was a real thing.
0: Yeah, he does say something about, cause calls the Muslims, which um, Muslims
1: don't like. Well, it's kind the, of a branch off, right? It's like a well right but muslims created like people were like a raised muslim
0: they they came from persia but they're actually the baha'is are persecuted in iran yeah Mm -hmm. right so um yeah so there was things that he got really right and it's it's interesting because i have actually recently thought about some of my friends who are still baha'is like about suggesting that they read um eye in the sky. But what's really interesting though, is that that puritanical world, um, I will say the one thing, the one real big problem I have with eye in the sky is that Baha'is are not puritanical at all. Uh, oh. quite the opposite. And, um, so it doesn't make as much sense without it being like super right wing Christianity. And so when I read that quote from Don wolheim that that had been PKD's original intention, I kind of just rewrote the story in my head while I was reading it, and the kind of the Bob stuff I just kind of wasn't paying attention to.
1: We will yeah, talk. later. That, that no, but I think the interesting thing about the that, that's that's that um, second Babist world, it needs the bar and it needs the the prostitutes in that one. So it it almost needs sin. In that sense, it's more Christian too, because Christians see sin at the central like human experience right
0: well i'll so indeed, I, I will tell you that our episode on eye in the sky which we have not recorded yet is going to talk a lot about that because i have yeah. tons of notes about um why it would have been a better novel <laughs> if it stuck to the christianity themes and um in fact i've already got like three or four pages <laughs> notes on that and i'm sure larry and anthony are cringing already <laughs> and how, how much I'm going to talk about that aspect of the novel, but
1: the real puritanical is that that mother. She's yeah. Much, she's the one who wants to abolish everything that's offensive. Right? Well, just anything she doesn't like. Anything she doesn't like. which yes. Isn't really based on a very clear religion. It's just no, she's no. It's offended just offended by everything. She wants to. So she the, doesn't like puritanism she, as basically a type of fear of of anything that makes one uncomfortable. I think is interesting.
0: Yeah, she doesn't. She wants to like if she doesn't she doesn't like certain kinds of light bulbs. Like they don't exist anymore in this world. And, um, I thought that was really interesting because, um, I saw a lot of similarities in that character actually. Um, uh, how do I say this sensitively? My wife would be very much like that. Um, (laughs) if she could snap her fingers and get rid of like a lot of things in the world, like, um, and it's funny because I read a bunch of, she's a PKD fan too. And, uh, she hadn't read Eye in the Sky, but there were a lot of parts with that character where I was showing her parts for mm-hmm. that character and saying, and she was like, yes, um, I, I feel for that woman. And, mm-hmm. um, so it was kind of funny, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I love Eye in the Sky. So, Evan, it was great talking to you. Um, yeah. we're going to sure. have to, um, get you back every couple episodes to catch up on, um, uh, even when it's harder with your timing in China, we'll just have to figure it out.
1: i will be fine. I'll be up late. Well, that, yeah, I was used to, I I did episodes with that SF audio, another good podcast and they were always do, doing it like Sunday morning. So I just had to like be up Saturday night to late, you know, you know, yeah, this time period might be tough in china but we'll work something out
0: we'll work something out but i i um really because we i I know we're ending out the year with man in the high castle um Mm -hmm. with just the way our schedule worked out um and uh but we also we're doing the movies too and uh we're gonna do human is next and um so you know that's one we're really looking forward to and some of the stories but um so, uh, closing thoughts for our dickheads listeners: um, uh, What stuff should they check out? Where should they find your work? And 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 how do they? Tie okay, to you? so
1: my my podcast is is actually called American Writers, one hundred pages at a time. Uh, it's on Podbean. Uh, you can also find it on iTunes, and that's actually a podcast where I'm reading the Amer- Library of America, one hundred pages at a time. You know, so some novels I'll do several episodes on, and then. Within that, because I don't want to pay for another website, I don't want to pay another Podbean more money. I started doing the Philip K. Dick Book Club as part of that. So if you go to that website, you go to that podcast, you'll find the Philip K. Dick Book Club. So you can ignore the other stuff if you want, although I think that's great—that's good stuff too. Um, I just finished a series on Willa Cather, and I'm starting one on Theodore Dreiser. Um, but within that, I got the PKD Book Club, which I've—I I look at every single work uh, in order of publication.
0: Yeah. Well, the New American Library just did a. a- richard matheson short story collection i got it it was really good oh really so yeah. yeah i mean they are i think getting to genre and and doing
1: library of america or new american oh new american library sorry yeah i'm talking about library of america but they're also doing good on getting genre stuff they they did a lovecraft volume they've done the dick volumes Some they've just really they're doing ursula Le Guin now and and others so library of america has been very good on that yeah um so there's that uh you can check out the book philip k dick and the world we live in it's uh available through wide books uh, or on amazon um and that's probably what uh the philip k dick review is up i'm not adding to it at all but that has all the short stories
0: well i'm glad that it's up because i've been using it
1: (laughs) yeah it's one reason i switched to audio into youtube videos is like i went back and looked at them and there's there's like too many typos so i'm 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 really, I'm really lazy. I need an editor, so I'm also too lazy to go back and just fix it. So, um, you don't make typos when you're speaking. Uh, So there's that, and yeah, that's. I I say I also have a YouTube channel just under my name, Evan Lampy, and but no one watches that.
0: Oh, I do, and I have subscribed. (laughs) And so, uh, when our listeners go, if you haven't already subscribed to Dickheads podcast on YouTube, you can. Subscribe to Evan and to Dickheads. Um, but we really appreciate um, your time and your insight. It, it, it's awesome because you have such a different perspective in how you read uh, PKD. Um, and I, I do think it's cool that you're coming at it from the more um, political, social, political, that kind of thing. Um, we're doing it from the storytelling thing. I, I think it's a um, uh, neat synergy yeah. and I really appreciate it. So, hey, keep us in mind and, uh, please, uh, tell your fellow dickheads that we're out here. We, uh, um, we, um, are just starting. So we're new to this and we appreciate the listen. So thank you, Evan, for your time.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.